Hello, and welcome to the Stand Up Tragedy podcast. My name's Dave, and I'm your host. This month, we're bringing you two podcasts from our Tragic Misadventures Night that happened in collaboration with Kit Lovelace's Romantic Misadventure, which took place on Wednesday, the 9th of July. And after that, we're going to have a couple of episodes that showcase some of the best performances that we've had since we started going three years ago. To find out more about Romantic Misadventure, go to romanticmisadventure.com and to find out more about Kit Lovelace, who runs that night, follow him on Twitter, at Kit Lovelace. Stand Up Tragedy are taking the tragedy up to the Edinburgh Festival again this year. We're going to be on at 7.30pm every day from the 2nd to the 24th of August at the Banshee Labyrinth Banqueting Hall. We're on as part of the Free Fringe and we'll have a different lineup of amazing tragic acts every night. We'll be releasing at least two podcasts a week while we're up there. So if you can't make it to Edinburgh, you can still hear a hell of a lot of the tragedy. You can help make the tragedy happen by donating via PayPal on our website, www.standuptragedy.co.uk. So that's enough from me. Here's Act One of Tragic Misadventures. Oh, Dave Pickering. Okay. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Stand Up Tragedy. Uh, my name's Dave and I'm your host. Uh, and today um, at Stand Up Tragedy, we're doing something a bit different. In fact, most of you are like, what the hell Stand Up Tragedy? Uh, we are teaming up with the fantastic uh, night that Kit Lovelace runs at the Black Heart. Uh, romantic misadventure. So romantic misadventure plus Stand Up Tragedy equals uh, stand up. Oh, oh, I'm doing the wrong thing there. Uh, equals tragic misadventures so that's where we are tonight uh hello kit hi welcome hello thank you for coming <laughs> so uh what happens at stand-up tragedy which is half of this night is i bring together lots of different kinds of performers it's kind of a variety night uh where people stand up and do tragedy rather than comedy because there's enough comedy out there but there is a lot of laughs uh in my kind of nights as well. Uh, we would like people to laugh until they cry and cry until they laugh. You know, you're going to get the whole gamut of emotions when you come to Stand Up Tragedy. Uh, we've been doing them themed this year, and so my half of the night are kind of themed around what Kit normally does at his night, so you'll be kind of familiar with that, but they won't be, uh, so they won't be likely to be necessarily storytellers, although some of them will be. Um, I'm going to be telling a true story, and there's going to be a lot more true stories than, uh, than not, so don't make the, uh, the acts who are like doing music or poetry don't make them feel too uh, othered because they already are a bit othered aren't they I feel a bit bad for them already I'm doing it now uh, so don't you do it it's a bad idea to copy me in that but um, one thing I should say about stand-up tragedy is uh, and I think that, tra uh, that romantic misadventure is kind of the same uh, sometimes it might go to dark places and dark things might happen because uh, it's tragic and so be prepared for that uh, and you know just in life be prepared for that anyway but, uh, but be prepared for it on stage tonight uh, generally what happens at romantic misadventure is that uh, I beg my friends for a few <laughs> drinks to come and tell some funny stories so um, 
there's there's less caveats. Uh, <laughs> but uh, that's what that's what you'll be getting from my half of the uh, <laughs> the sketch. Yeah. Uh, um, what uh, what we're doing tonight, uh, Kit has very lovelily uh, allowed us to charge on the door because uh, stand-up tragedy are going up to Edinburgh and we're trying to raise some money. And I like lost my job this year, right? So my life has become a tragedy. I've lost my job and now I'm taking a show to Edinburgh that I shouldn't be taking to Edinburgh, right? Because I haven't got a job. Uh, so uh, please give generously tonight uh, because for my There's sake. Uh, yes, uh, uh, but also which for has the sake some of really great prizes. Because, uh, uh, I'll go into them later, but one of them is a bottle of whiskey so quite worth yeah, it pretty uh, nice pretty you know that's nice. that's kind of worth it uh i i'd, I'd pay as drunk raffle. by mcnulty on the wire <laughs> um not that particular <laughs> not that particular bottle but the brand definitely entirely <laughs> in fact it's 100 percent it jameson so it's great. I, I really like this because I'm like I'm like politically I'm kind of an anarchist. I don't don't judge me, but I'm, I'm an anarchist that has a clipboard, right? So I'm a f fundamentally there's a con conflict in the middle of my persona, and uh, Kit's like the proper anarchist part of me, and so it's making me feel good uh, now. Uh, I'm a good anarchist with Kit beside me. <laughs> I'm just a sort of lanky chancer who's about to turn thirty with no clipboard. Yeah, um, man. I, I turned our, 30 already, though, and it's, it's actually it was a good year. Okay. Well, there's been few good years, and that was one of the good years. So if your life is like mine, it probably isn't, though. Let's face it. We can't universalize. Uh, anyway, <laughs> Stand Up Tragedy is also a podcast, uh, and you can hear it on iTunes, and you can hear it on SoundCloud and that kind of stuff. Uh, as has been said already, uh, this night is going to go out as a podcast, so check it out. Um, and we're going to be also uh, having some interesting, tragic, uh, multi-sensory elements tonight. Um, one of them I'll introduce later on to you, but one of them is already around. Uh, there's kind of party popper-like uh, shapes. In fact, they are party poppers, basically, uh, all around the room. They are tragic snaps, and they were made by the author Jay Adamthwaite, who you can find at www.jadamthwaite.co.uk. She's also live-tweeting the night, so don't be too nasty about them in her hearing. <laughs> but uh, those someone tragic pop snaps. Someone pop one. Someone pop one. Yeah, there, there you go. go. Now, when you pop them, you should look for the stories because they're not just your average party poppers. They are party poppers with stories inside them. Yeah. Now we got the good times going. Pop, yeah. Pop, there pop. we go. So there we go. It's like a bowl of rice krispies in here. And now the tragic admin is tragically over. Thankfully, I will get off stage uh, because Kit's going to introduce the first act. Ladies and gentlemen, Dick Pickering. Uh, so, uh, the first of the acts, uh, shorter than both of us, so she may want to come to the stage and just readjust the microphone so that she doesn't spend too long doing it in a second, uh, is a very, very dear friend of mine. Uh, we live together at the moment, and it has been nothing but joyous. Uh, and I don't want that to sound like it. This is sort of... I'm running some sort of nepotistic racket here where I just... Uh, I just invite people that uh, cohabit with me. But this is, um, yes, a very dear friend, uh, very funny, very lovely. Uh, not wishing to set the bar too high there with my introduction. But a huge round of applause with your hands, your feet, and anything else that comes nearby you. Miss Nell Frizzell! Thank you. It's true, we are living together. I was seen off to work this morning by Kit in a towel singing, Friends Like You Make the World Go Round. <laughs> it's quite sweet. 
Uh, towel was just about big enough. Um, <coughs> I've come dressed as Mr. Motivator. No reason. I just made it, so I thought I'd wear it. Um, this, I, yeah, so this is a true story. Um, my first taste of heartbreak came, like my first taste of taxoplasmosis, while surrounded by sheep nuts. I cannot begin to tell you how much this story acts as a template for every heartbreak I've ever shuddered through, but here goes. I was four years old at Cotswold Wildlife Park, a place that prides itself on its menu of £7.90 chicken nuggets and chips, which is a lot if you're going to feed children. Anyway, um, and I was with my best friend Catherine Sprent and the love of my young life, Hamish Spender. Now, I should say at this point, I should have changed their names. <laughs> But I didn't. Um, and I once wrote about Catherine Sprint, and her mum emailed me saying, please change her name. And I've not learnt my lesson. <laughs> so, sorry. Um, and Hamish, it turns out, was the grandson of Stephen Spender, the poet. So it's good, I've got his name in. Um, Stephen Spender is the man who wrote, Ah, like a comet through flame, she moves entranced, Wrapped in her music, no bird song, nor no bough, breaking with honey buds, shall ever equal. Which, I can tell you, wasn't written about me as I moved in trance through the boughs and bird song of Cotswold Wildlife Park. Even though I was, apparently, wearing my favourite striped cotton dungarees at the time. Because on that day, I had the burning comet of searing betrayal fired through my heart. Catherine Sprint, a girl with whom I shared a love of instant chicken noodles and the Eurovision he hero, Sonia. Now, I'm sure you all remember Sonia. She was the Mick Hucknall of West Lancashire <laughs> and co-hosted a TV show called The Wetter the Better, which unaccountably and despite the enormous entendre was aimed at children... Yeah, I've actually never seen it, but I, I think we can all imagine. Luckily, this wasn't a 70s TV show. This was a 90s one, so it's fine. Um, but to quote my mother, who I actually used today to fact-check this story, because I thought once Catherine Sprint's mother emails me, at least my mum can back me up on the facts. Um, <clears throat> apparently, <laughs> Catherine Sprint, and this is a quote, literally moved in on Hamish. He and I were friends and used to play together and go to each other's houses. In fact, it was his mum who first introduced me to uh, rice paper. Um, it was on top of a cupcake and I ate it and it was terribly exciting. Except it led to a somewhat unfortunate fortnight where, like an anorexic recycling hybrid, I ate 14 sheets of variously coloured papers, <laughs> wondering why it all tasted so sour. Anyway, um, apparently Catherine got in between, like physically blocked me, got in between me and Hamish uh, on the slide, on the queue for the slide. She took him off to look at other animals and she blocked him at the picnic table. In a way, it's just like that song by Sonia. <laughs> there was a number one hit in 1989, You'll Never Stop Loving Me. This is the, this is the lyrics. Um, I catch a glimpse or two, but it seems that all the time the thought is on my mind of being with you. All I can actually remember of the whole occasion is the hot physical pain of coming round the corner and seeing Hamish and Catherine Sprent nuzzled together in what was an undeniable nest of affection, feeding a lamb with sheep nuts. Together. 
dipping their child fingers into the same oat-dusted papery bag of nuts before twisting and laughing with pleasure as their palms, if not their consciences, were licked clean by God's malicious representatives here on earth. (laughs) As I stumbled upon their muttony tryst, dungarees Dungarees shining in the sun... (laughs) Um, And uh, my face a pathetic mix of hope and fear. They didn't even look round. It's like Sonia said. When I see you on the street, you stare down at your feet. You won't talk at all. It was awful. Like, it was genuine. It was that pain that's like iced vinegar being suddenly poured through your every single vein. And it's something I've experienced more times since than sheep have chromosomes. 54 time, 54 numbers, (laughs) for those of you taking notes. Um, It happened when I saw my first proper boyfriend walking hand in hand through the Lee Student Union car park with his girlfriend, who was wearing a fleece. (sighs) It happened when I found out the man I'd been cooking meat for was sleeping with a girl who always wore pink. That was her thing. She always wore pink. Um, And apparently, according to my mum, I handled it then exactly the way I've handled it every time since. And this bit actually might make me cry, but it's fine, because Mr. Motivate is fine. She says, and this is another quote, your poor little face, it was so sad, you were so upset, but you just stomped around being jolly like you do now, saying things like, don't worry, I can see the rhinoceros from here. As Catherine Sprint paraded her new catch before me, like Bella, Cotswold Wildlife Park's Asiatic lion, tearing out my heart. (laughs) Of course, it was inevitable. I've been on enough walks with enough men, surrounded by enough animals to know when I've been beaten. I'm not a natural seductress. I once hit a man in the jaw while trying to flirtatiously dance to Delta Five. I once uttered the phrase, honestly, I look like Chris Hoy in a bikini, as I tried to charm a man into undressing me. Uh, (laughs) And I once slammed a door in a man's face because he wouldn't let me apply Vaseline to his chill-blained nipple. (laughs) Hi, Sam, wherever you are. Um, I cannot and will never be able to wrestle a man's attention and affection away from a small, blonde coquette, however many sheep nuts I buy. It's like Hamish's grandfather, Stephen, wrote, your heart was loaded with its fate like lead pressing against the net of flesh. Or, to quote Sonia's 1994 Eurovision tie-in hit, hopelessly devoted to you, a song actually that Catherine Sprint and I created an amazing dance routine for, which we performed in front of her electric typewriter, which dates it, um, to her barely conscious parents as her dad ate uh, fruit and fiber, as he did every morning before he went to school. Anyway, uh, <laughs> it's very like Sonia sang. Guess mine is not the heart, first heart broken. My eyes are not the first to cry. I'm not the first to know. There's just no getting over you. And yet, and yet, I owe Catherine a debt of gratitude, if not a huge apology after publicly calling her a child whore on stage in front of a room full of strangers as it's being recorded. <clears throat> because that day... <laughs> That day, she taught me something hugely important, which is that men, lovers, objects of your sweaty-palmed affection and hopeless, heart-fluttering hopes are transient. They come, and as soon as someone smaller, blonder, more wily walks in, they go. 
And all you can do is learn how to enjoy their absence, to fill your heart with an independent, unshakable pleasure that comes from simply existing among the grassed over train tracks, the plates of baked beans, the quiet rivers. Like Hamish's granddad said, whatever happens, I shall never be alone. I shall always have a boy, a railway fare, or a revolution, and I'll happily ride them all. <laughs> that last bit's me. <laughs> I like that whoever was like doing the party popper as a, as a part of the applause. I like that. That's good stuff. Right. Uh, yes. So I'm going to introduce uh, the first act from the stand-up tragedy part of the, the night. So uh, welcome to the stage, everybody, Professor Gloria Sanders. <laughs> Hello. Good evening. Good evening. Thank you so much for coming at such short notice. Um, thank you, David. Hello. Hi. Um, I'm here tonight to present the findings of a 50-year research. Um, uh, uh, do you know Lorca? Yeah. Lovely. Well, he wrote a poem called Adelina de Paseo. Uh, it means Adelina out walking on a Saturday. And um, there is a line in the poem, and he says, there is no love in Seville. Well, he says, there is no love in Sevilla. <laughs> well, you know, you've heard him, obviously. Um, <clears throat> now, we here at the Institute were a little bit perturbed because we generally take everything that's said in poetry to be absolute fact. So I was, I was given funding to... Um, to go to Sevilla, Seville, and, um, and carry out my own research. Uh, so I originally went with my colleague, who sadly passed away. He drowned in the Guadalquivir. Um, and I stayed, and I, and I essentially carried out the research on myself. So uh, Ida, my PhD student, is here. Ida, uh, would you, my love? Um, she has some hard copy evidence, which uh, will be available in the research packs, which will be sent to you, if you wish. Um, this is the hard copy evidence that there is no love in Seville. Uh, you will see as they go around. Um, and, and I will simply read to you a selection of the case studies, if, if you will indulge me. Um, <clears throat> Lovely. Okay, well, I will begin. Uh, the first case study is called Primavera, or Next to the River. Uh, there is a pun in the title. By the river they are necking, necking by the pedalos. By the golden tower they intertwine, blissful in the throes of a spring interlocution, necking as they sigh, liking limbs spread out on stone under photogenic sky. They've been necking at the bus stop in the back row of screen one, and although they're fond of necking, they're not sure this neck's the one that they see their future with, though they neck exquisitely, and yet it is as though these necks were meant to be. 
They've never necked as nicely as these languorous caresses by the church and by the lake above collars, shirts, and dresses. When they necked under the canopy, they knew they'd neck some more. When the sun set over bridges and reflected off the oars, they have given up their necks in divine indifference to the disapproving glances they invite in the absence of the voyeur's ownership of a neck to nuzzle with, suspended in the sunshine, knowing how to live. In this attentive gesture, in this silent declaration, as they neck next to the sculpture, drawing tuts of irritation. <clears throat> That's at 1964 that was collected. <laughs> so, uh, oh, pardon me. The, uh, the next one is uh, Zest, um, and there's, there's no pun. Uh, 1973, this was collected. Paprika red fingers against black ceramic. I'll never be a surgeon. <laughs> Shellfish quake in plastic skin, heads off, insides spill. Love laughs, tails off, as you push my hair away from my face. The smell of the lemon, the cheap date, lobotomizing langoustines prompted your proposal. <laughs> Awkward looking ring on paprika red finger. Uh, I saw that in 1973, it was very awkward. They, they knew I was making notes. <laughs> um, this is um, 10 years later in 1983. Uh, as part of the funding, I was given um, um, a, a sort of key to the city, if you like. Um, I was able to go uh, uh, essentially eavesdrop, uh, break into people's houses, uh, and, and just be there in their kitchens, in their, in their bedrooms. <laughs> Um, and, uh, uh, and it was marvelous. And uh, I got a, a real insight into, um, well, you know, if we're going to prove Lorca wrong or right, we, we need to do it by whatever means uh, necessary. This is called uh, IV Veritas, or Intravenous Vanity, or In Vino Veritas, at 1983. <clears throat> I stitched you into the pillowcase. I reduced myself into the particle you see before you. I said, it didn't matter that your matter wasn't complete without some heat from me. The linen wasn't folded. The iron burnt a hole in the board. You got bored of waiting. The seams, it seems, were overstitched. Wrenching them apart to release the feathery innards was rash. We honestly received each gift. The sewing machine from the couple next door hinting at their dislike of our uncurtained windows. Full view, full disclosure, full frontal baths to bathe away the lies. We tried to be so real. <laughs> We'd steal truths from each other like splashes of milk for the morning tea. We pooled our resources to make statues of self-reliant Neanderthals, hunting each other's weaknesses to feed our family of doubts. When the couple next door invited us round for drinks, we had drinks at ours in the window, just us. The baby tried to stitch us together. It's called a thread through our needle eyes. We said, no, thanks, not today, baby. I told myself I was doing well. I told you to go to hell. You listened. And you went. As the curtains go up and block out the sunlight, a couple next door are playing Spandau Ballet. I know this much is true. That, that was a depressing day, I'm not going to lie. Um, 
And uh, finally, um, dregs. This was collected in 1997, uh, and I, I fled after this. <clears throat> dregs, she said. These are dregs you're giving me. These are used up, leftover, recycled ends of something that once lived. She said, where are the new ideas you promised me? She said, where's the fresh crop? The young spring shoots you said you were cultivating. It was all a game, wasn't it? It was over when I said I would, wasn't it? No, here they are. These new sentiments are only yours, only yours, my love, my dear one. Don't fear the failure of our harvest. Our shoots will spring, our crops will grow, our love will spread like wild ivy across the walls of our loving union. She said, that's nice, that's a nice image. She said, these dregs then, what are these dregs you bring me now? Take them to the compost, let them fertilize another batch of brave new feeling. I can't see how they'll be good for ours. Look, look, this was once the passion of Cleopatra. This was Cupid's finest triumph. This here, this tea bag that you scoff at. She said, this soggy bag of leaves that looks like an old scrotum. Mm. She said, stop, now stop. She said, grow up. Look, this spiral of pear skin is a vortex of sexual energy. If we plant it underneath our window, we'll reach a transcendental apex. She said, the smell is transcendent. She said, your sanity transcends all hope. Look. Look, this glop of seeds from the melon is potential. She said, I'm leaving you. She said, the dregs of your intentions have catalyzed my exasperations. See, the coffee grounds are a poultice. She said, a pox on your poultices. Your dregs have driven me to despair. She said, take back your grape skin ring. She said, these dregs, these dregs, these dregs. And so, um... <clears throat> To, uh, to sort of sum up, um, I, I'd like to read you Lorca's poem, if, if possible. Uh, I mean, I know you all know it. Obviously, you wouldn't be here if you didn't. Um, so it's called Adelina's Saturday Stroll. I'll read it in English for the benefit of most of you. Um, and I think, you know, essentially, this is research in progress, but it, it should be published within the next 50 years. So. Um, Adelina's Saturday Stroll by Federico García Lorca. Oranges do not grow in the sea. Neither is there love in Sevilla. You in dark and I, the sun that's hot, uh, loan me your parasol. <clears throat> I'll wear my jealous reflection, juice of lemon and lime, and your words, your sinful little words, will swim around a while. Oranges do not grow in the sea. I love, and there is no love in Seville. Thank you. <laughs> Professor Gloria Sanders. 50 years of research, looking pretty good on it. I'm not using this as a platform to flirt, but uh, academia works for you. Right. 
I'm, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna fall on the sword of adjusting this mic, uh, but it's gonna have to go higher than I am for the next guest. Uh, right, so. Uh, my next uh, performer that I'm going to welcome to the stage, uh, he uh, is the host of... You see, I know all of this information, but I've got it written down here. You see, so I don't think you do need a clipboard, because... Oh, uh, Kit, we'll sort that out for the podcast. <laughs> I don't think you do need a uh, clipboard, Kit. <clears throat> uh, but yes, anyway... I'm going to welcome a friend of mine, but I'm going to welcome him as if I don't know him very well, because uh, that's my style. <laughs> so... Uh, uh, Radcliffe's going to be joining us at Edinburgh, so you should look out for him there. But he also hosts the uh, second, what, the Brixton Spark London Night. A true, it's a true storytelling night, and he does an open mic at the Ritzy Cinema in Brixton on the third Monday of every month. I've given his name away already. I'm not very good at this hosting business, but I am pretty tragic. Put your hands together for Radcliffe Rides! Thank you, Dave. The Taj Mahal of tragedy is my pet name for Dave. Um, and I just want to um, just want to gauge the room a little bit because obviously um, I need to know how isolated I'm going to feel with the story I'm going to tell. I come from a tradition of true storytelling, which means that everything I say has happened. Quite often it will happen, but um, it usually has happened uh, to me, and that's what I share with you. The listening audience. Obviously, as we are being podcast, a lot of names will have to um, put up with the fact that I'm not changing them. Um, <laughs> hey, that's the power. Are there any students in the room? Oh, God. Oh, yeah, a couple. Okay. Mature students, almost, yes. Um, are, there any, uh, are there any unemployed people? Uh, it's not a judgment thing at all, by the way. Um, I'm, I'm alongside you on this. What I want to do is gauge how far anyone would go um, in the pursuit of romantic love. I was a student. Um, slightly technically not a student in that I'd been expelled from school and I was living in Edinburgh where I worked as a, um, a barman in the local wine bar which was great because lots of artistic people, university types, would come, and I would blend in quite well, and I sounded right, obviously. I'd been privately educated. Um, and um, it has an advantage, it does, um, in that, uh, well, I'm not even sure, I'll find out what that is, but I'm, I'm told it had an advantage. The important bit was that I was living amongst these student people, and I didn't have enough money to survive. I'd left home, obviously in disgrace. And uh, the art department, are there any artists in the room? Yes. The art department, thank you. Good. Uh, you'll understand this. Artists that were doing life studies and life drawing had a requirement for models. Okay, now, when I was 18, you can work it out, obviously. From the back, mid to late 30s, a little bit more from the front, I can tell, but we're talking about 1979, 1980, something like that, um, which is before a lot of you will have known about the <laughs> art and artists' models. Um, what I did was put myself up for being painted, and the reason I did it was this girl, 
Oh, my God. You know when you meet someone and you just can't talk to them? <laughs> you ever, has anyone ever had that feeling? I mean, obviously not on a Friday night when you're drunk. Obviously, you not talk to anyone on a Friday night when you're drunk. But this girl, I was tongue-tied. Normally, I'm quite well relaxed about talking to total strangers. You're all total strangers to me. And, um, but this girl, I couldn't talk to. And she was a little punk. Punk rock was kind of new in those days. I know you see it as a retro style. I, I saw it as groundbreaking, obviously. Um, and she was this artist. And I thought, OK, I know how I can get to, to, get to know her. So I turned up at the art department of the university and I signed myself up for £10 an hour, which was a fortune in those days. Um, it was. I mean, a good wage was about 25 quid a week in those days. So I was getting £10 an hour. But I had to pose naked. Now, clearly, in order for this story to have any real impact, I'm going to have to, um, <laughs> I'm gonna have to remind everyone of quite how lovely... Lovely, a physical form can be. Um, don't worry, I'm not about to remove my clothes. But I wasn't so, you know, socially aware in those days. And I thought, right, I'm going to do it. And I had to pretend to just be really casual and relaxed. There's about ten students, some guys and some girls. I was getting a lot more attention from a guy called Roddy. That's, that's his name changed from Roderick. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, he, he seemed to quite like me, and this other girl called Alice, um, I definitely liked. Oh, I thought she was kind of cool. And there was the girl of my dreams, who was this little punk rocket, and wore sort of, you know, trashy, sort of, she looked that really sort of slutty, cool, sort of steampunk outfit. And, and basically she wore red PVC pants, which was the big thing. And when you're standing on a stage, looking for about an hour and a half at a time, like this, Naked, naked, not a stitch on. You, your mind starts to wander because <laughs> you're not encouraged to speak. Don't want the artist flow to be interrupted. And uh, I noticed this girl. It's unfortunate for you, young lady, because you're sitting right where she used to sit. So obviously there's an association going on here which may cause some embarrassment for, for me and you. Uh, as, as, see how we go. And as she crossed her legs and showed me the red PVC pants, I, I did what every male or teenage male would do. I pretended it wasn't happening, thought about Newcastle United, and, uh, and just prayed that I wasn't going to ruin too many pictures. And anyway, the long things happened, clearly. She was inspired to come and talk to me after that session. Said, I want to do a, a picture. You've inspired me. Oh, oh hello. And um, if I just tell you, the, the name of this piece of art was called The Spear of Jesus. <laughs> and I, I, I don't want to offend anyone's religious sensitivities, but I think I gave him a fairly generous, um, generous go. You know, he was fine. Anyway, and so I did this. She still wouldn't, she still didn't see me as a prospective mate. Now, once you've stood in front of a woman in that state, and you are the study of hours of, you know, Hebrew God, let's face it, the spear of Jesus, I, I figured, well, she's not interested. And about a week later, we were at a party. 
rather nice party in a big house in the country. I used to go to a lot of those. Um, I used to get asked everywhere once. It's probably much the average. But I got, uh, I got, I got the invite, and we go. And we're all going to stay for the weekend. It's quite a big hoodie, and it's all good fun. And there are, it's sort of a slightly baronial hall, I suppose you would call it. And there are suits of armor around the place, as you know, most people will have in their home somewhere, I imagine. <laughs> if, if you've come here tonight, you'll understand what I'm talking about. Or if not, you will aspire to understand what I'm talking about. Um, the conversation that I had at about one o'clock was, I'm really off my head. I just need to go and lie down for a bit. I can't cope with this. And Roddy, short for Roderick, who used to sit on the left-hand side of me in the art class, took me upstairs to bed, and I crashed out, and I was quite out of it. And I woke up with him wanking over me. Now, I know, you know, we've had most of my heroes from youth have been debunked. Let me think of Rolf and <laughs> Jimmy, all of those people. They've gone now. Not for me, so there's an empty hole. So I'm left with visions of Roddy. <laughs> oh, so I got up, and I thought, oh, Christ, this is awful. I went back to the party and was kind of involved. And it just so happened that Scarlet um, Pimpernel, as, well, Scarlet Nickers as she was, but Scarlet Pimpernel in my head was there. And I sort of said, look, I've just had a most awful experience. Really quite worrying. And she sort of, oh, that's awful, that's awful. And she said, you know what? I've been sitting here, she's quite pissed, a little bit stoned. She said, I'm sitting here thinking, I want, what do I want? I want a knight in shining armour, someone to come and sweep me off my feet. And I thought, okay. And I went off, and I went into the hall, where I found a 15th century suit of armour. <laughs> And I managed to get the back plate and the breastplate on, some greaves on the feet, and I went and found her. And to my utter joy, she capitulated. This was her absolute fantasy in life. And we got rather carried away, and things were getting very athletically, shall we say that she was riding her, her lance a lot. Um, and we were on the top of the staircase, and in a moment of just sheer blind, oh, this is so good, I thrust slightly too hard, and she erupted slightly too forward, and we launched on this tin tray arrangement on my back <laughs> down the stairs. My last vision of this girl, and Roddy, in fact, was a very disappointed Roddy, with the host's parents standing at the top of the stairs looking down at me as I finished up what was necessarily the most wonderful night of her life where <laughs> I enacted her fantasy and was a knight in shining armour. Thank you very much. Radcliffe, thank you very much. Uh, we have uh, one uh, act left in this half, uh, then there'll be an interval. Uh, Dave, we'll, we'll, there is uh, some raffle talk and some uh, other such talk. Uh, but your last sort of proper act uh, for this half, uh, another friend of mine, uh, <laughs> just on the verge of releasing her, her book, her first book, uh, A Biography of Neil Gaiman, which by all accounts is absolutely incredible. I'm very excited to read it. That's not what this is about, but uh, no doubt she will charm you and delight you and you will rush out first thing and buy this book. 
ladies and gentlemen, a big round of applause for Hayley Campbell. Which one's bigger? This one? That one's for we guys. Um, so I'm the kind of person who hurts themselves a lot. I, uh, I have a lot of accidents of the non-piss kind, and I end up in ambulances, and I break things I didn't know existed, and, um, and also I'm a big fan of admin. So I wrote this thing which combines these two interests because basically I think I'm gonna die soon. Um, this is an open letter to my obituarist. Uh, Dear person who is going to tidy my life into one succinct paragraph or maybe more if you have to make a word count. In the event of my inevitable death, you will be required to write a thing about me, and I can only apologize that I have not given you more to go on. Um, as I am not dead yet, I will do everything in my power to give you enough for a small column in a tiny local newspaper that no one will ever read. Um, not that I'm saying your own personal career path is pointless. Um, I'm sure you contribute to local news sections and such also. But in case I... Uh, in case of my death, I, I feel like I need to include, I, I, I'd like you to include and not include the following things. First and foremost, um, in the event it transpires I had a fling with the 90s actor Dean Cain, <laughs> best known for being Clark in The Adventures of Lois and Clark, and then for wearing weird turtleneck sweaters and suede jackets on Ripley's Believe It or Not, and then making men squirt milk in record-breaking distances from their tear ducts. Please do not make that the main hook in this life story. I have seen that happen, and that shit is bleak. Um, do not mention my possible future romance with the 90s actor Dean Cain. Okay, we can move on. Um, uh, instead, uh, you should focus on my future inventions, of which the patents are not even filed, let alone pending. Um, see first paragraph for apology. I suggest you hone in on the one piece for which I imagine I will be well known at the time of my death, providing that doesn't happen in the next five to 20 years. Um, the Completo Delito, it's a working title, uh, it monitors the beat of your heart from afar and then immediately wipes your hard drive should that beat stop. Uh, thus rendering the in case of death, please delete my porn friend a thing of the past. It also deletes your Facebook account so that it doesn't become a sappy memorial space or place of annual embarrassment for birthday well-wishers who missed a memo. <laughs> it, it nixes your Twitter so undue gravity is not lent to the last thing you tweeted about Paulie Shaw. And it kills that Angel Fire website you made when you were 13, where you wrote an essay about blocking a toilet in California and called it, I left my turd in San Francisco. <laughs> this is an autobiographical. Um, it's still there on page 10 of the Google results. You've forgotten this, but um, this machine will not. It's all in my mental blueprint. Uh, how many words have we got for this thing? Do I get a 5,000 word tribute in the New York Times? Or am I relegated to the 30 word flowers no charity yes bin? 
If I died young, and if you have a spare paragraph, I want you to focus on my potential. Uh, hark back to those school report card days where I fulfilled none of it, fulfilled none of my potential because of apathy rather than death. Uh, the latter being the new reason for why I didn't do all the stuff I said I was going to do instead of the actual reason, which is I was too busy stalking people on page 10 of Google. <laughs> Those report cards made me sound like an aloof genius who never had to ask the questions because she knew all the answers. Was I a person who knew all the answers? You tell me. Uh, or tell the readers, hell, I don't know and I don't care. I'm just throwing ideas out here. By the time you write this, I will be dead and will no longer be required to present proof of knowing answers to anything. You can basically free will this is what I'm saying. Uh, if my life trajectory continued in the way it's currently going before I died in a horrific slash freak accident, involving a tree branch or torso murder or whatever, then focus on my interesting death slash torso. Do not go for the truth Southern gentlemen like to eat grits and cornbread approach if I have done nothing notable but die. Uh, I don't want everyone to know that I was living on a strange diet of quinoa because I watched David, a David Lynch cookery video on YouTube that one time and then got really into quinoa for some reason spending all my time looking up quinoa recipes instead of writing that novel I always had the potential to write. For example, tell them I died in pain. Did I get a Wikipedia entry in the end? If my invention for the self-destructing HD does pan out, then chances are you will have no photos to run with this thing. <laughs> I I'm sorry. You could get some off my parents, but they would be out of date, or my parents might be dead, or to be honest, I'm not sure I want that facial mistake printed in an actual newspaper. But perhaps you could get Charles Burns to rehash a picture of Janine Garofalo or something. But re my ability to deliver on potentials and actually carry out genius ideas, I predict you are going to be okay. You are going to have plenty of photo booth pouts to choose from. You are going to have countless photos of, of me in questionable outfits because, like Cher in Clueless, I do not trust mirrors. <laughs> Yours, imminently deceased, Haley Campbell. Right, so uh, so I'm just gonna I'm gonna bring on one one extra sort of act, but they're not a they're not a full act, but they are still a full person. So when when they come on, I need to give them lots of respect. But uh, uh, yeah, um, what one of the things I try to do at Stand Up Tragedy is to kind of explore what tragedy means, right, or in all the different ways. And uh, when I met uh, this guy who I'm gonna bring on in a minute called Joe Barrett, who, he, he does a podcast called uh, Life in Sense, which is all about smell, and I was like, ooh smell of tragedy what does tragedy smell like um so i mean before i before i bring him on i, I, I did sort of asked people on facebook and twitter to, to try and find out what they thought tragedies smelled like uh, alex fox who's uh, he's got synesthesia uh, she said i'm not sure about tragedy but i'm off but often if i'm frightened i'll smell unpolished silver teaspoons of metal and get a taste in my mouth as though i've accidentally chewed a piece of foil from an old style kit kat Amazing. I wish I was synesthetic. Anyway. Uh, anyway, uh, at 4160 Tuesdays, I have no idea who that is, uh, on Twitter though, said, uh, tragedy smells like salt water, lilies, scorched earth, and cold skin. 
which I quite like. Uh, and then uh, my friend Lily on Facebook said, uh, it smells like every smell you love gone bad. Almonds that reek of bitter cyanide, wood smoke that smells of a house on fire, an orchard of rotting fruit. So those are my favourites. There were loads of other people who uh, suggested different things. Um, I sort of threw all of them at Joe, and uh, Joe's now going to share some of his kind of findings and thoughts about it. Um, he's, are, you, well, are, you, are you ready, Joe? You are ready. Okay, so put your hands together, everybody, for Joe Barrett. Hello. Uh, so what I do is I make smells. <laughs> Thanks, because that's my only joke. <laughs> um, so I make smells and I put them in spaces, and then I hope that those smells make people feel things. And I met Dave and he was telling about what he does and I was telling about what I do and he says you've got to come along to my this kind of stand-up tragedy thing I do and I said okay so I'll make the smell of tragedy and that was interesting Um, but I've made three different scents which you lot are going to smell and you're going to choose a scent which we're going to make the show at Edinburgh smell like this so the room is going to smell like this the flyers are going to smell like this, and Dave is going to smell like this because I'm going to make it into a perfume that you can, and you, you can buy this if you want, if you donate to the uh, Edinburgh Fund. Um, now, Dave already mentioned that we we both asked a lot of people on the internet and people we know what they think tragedy smells like. Um, so I'm going to read one out, which is the kind of basis of this first scent. And while I do this, um, if if Julia could pass out these scent strips. There's, there's more of you than I expected, so you're going to have to share. But smell them as they pass you, so you can kind of get a sense. So this is, a, um, this is an, an email which was sent to me kind of out the blue. Um, most people were just sort of quite kind of publicly doing this, but this is a kind of tragic in itself. It's, a, it's an email from my ex-girlfriend's little sister who I haven't, hadn't spoken to in five years anyway. He said, hi, Joe, how are things? In response to your search for sad smells, I know this is a weird one, but most people love it, and actually I do too, but it's a bittersweet scent for me, and it's freshly washed linen. Whilst I love it because it's fresh and airy, clean and consistent, it can also therefore be a constant reminder that you're alone in bed and someone who used to share it with you and who used to merge or mask the scent of their own in a nice way is no longer there. So... This scent really is, it's sort of the smell of nothing. It's the smell of those, the kind of lost dreams and potential. And trying to make a smell that smells like nothing is, is kind of interesting. And it makes you think of the kind of tragicness of kind of aroma chemical companies because they're creating this smell of cleanliness and freshness. But that's a, that's a smell they put in there. It's not true. So is that, can you all smell that? Okay, so that's number one. And maybe maybe just think about this and hang on to it. Um, and now Julia's going to hand out a nu- number two. What, has anyone got any comments while Julia sends it out? What do you think? What do you think of it? Do you like it? It's so sad. Liking it is not the point. No, liking it is not the point. 
and they, they're going to get worse. <laughs> so this is the smell of the, this is the, this is the tragic drunk. And this is specifically, this is the smell of a, a middle-aged man kissing his nine-year-old daughter before he puts her to bed. And it's, so it's sort of sweet, it's sort of sweet and it's sort of well-intentioned, but it's, it's ultimately going to fail. And this one is this one's really quite unpleasant, I think. It's sort of chocolatey and a bit like uh, clothes that haven't been washed in long enough time. So the stress of rushing to work with a hangover. Okay, so that's number two, and number th number three, which we're going to hand out now. I I'd, I'd like people to um, try and shout out what what this makes them feel because part of the, the 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 making of this this was designed to smell like it was made for something else actually it was it was designed to smell like a emotion like a feeling so maybe people at the back it smells like regret so this so this one is um, there's there's something in this. It's, it's supposed to be it's it's kind of it's quite violent and quite high pitched and quite quite chemically. And the, the 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 raw chemical that's actually in this is the same thing that's in chilies, and this is supposed to be kind of fiery and angry. And this is the capsicum. Yes, that's exactly what it is. So this one is the, the idea behind this. No, did I hear gas chambers? So that's exactly what this should be. This is the, this is the tragedy of war. So it's, it's violent and angry, and this is the tragedy of like hundreds of young men and women going and putting their lives in a, in a hole for us. So that's it. That's so now everyone's got those three things. I think, uh, David, we're going to have a break. Yeah. So you can now. Now we're going to have a break, and we can get some air. Uh, but we should also be thinking about which of those three scents we like. Wait, it's not necessarily you like the most. It's the one that's the most tragic. But I would like the like the most one personally because I'm going to have to live with it for the whole of Edinburgh. If you like the tragic drunk smell, though, buy some raffle tickets because there is a bottle of Jameson's as part of that. So, hey, there you go. So you can find out more about Romantic Misadventure at romanticmisadventure.com and you can follow my co-host for these episodes, Kit Lovelace, at Kit Lovelace on Twitter. Come and see Stand Up Tragedy daily from the 2nd to the 24th of August at the Banshee Labyrinth as part of the Free Fringe at the Edinburgh Festival. It's time to go. And we'll be back doing London shows on the 25th of September, where we're at the Dog Star with Tragic Friends. 
Speaking of friends, you can make friends with the tragedy over on Facebook, where we're Stand Up Tragedy. You can also like us over there. And if you want to follow the tragedy, you can do that on Twitter at Stand Up for Tragedy. Check out our website www.standuptragedy.co.uk for more information on the lineups for podcasts as they come out. And also, there's a donate button over there, a PayPal donate button, and that will help us and me to continue the tragedy. This podcast was recorded by Stephen Harvey with music from Samuel Wilkinson and George Brufton. It was put together by me. Join us next week for Act two of tragic misadventures and now the tragedy is over